Let's talk our intestinal barrier, what health conditions it is linked to, and what we can do starting today to help promote the health of our intestinal wall, only here on the People Scientist Podcast. to the People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking, to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 145, where I arm us with some scientific evidence so we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with every new episode. How are you feeling today? I personally am feeling very grateful because you are allowing me to be a part of your day so that I can share some science with you. So thank you for that. And I hope that I can share some interesting and new scientific findings with you today. So what are we going to talk about in today's episode? Well, last week I got to be a part of a panel discussing some new research and new therapeutics for individuals battling with substance use disorder. And I was having a conversation with two experts in the field, Kelly Dunn from Johns Hopkins and Chris Evans from UCLA. We were talking about gut health in patients battling with substance use disorder or drug addiction. In the last five years, we have really begun to appreciate the relationship between gut health and mental well-being. As such, this got me thinking about the integrity of our intestinal barrier, our intestinal health. This has been commonly referred to as the leaky gut when there is a malfunction in the barrier of the intestinal wall. In research settings, we call this intestinal barrier dysfunction. So let's talk a bit about that today and perhaps what we can do to help promote our intestinal health and our mental health. And I bet there will be a few surprising findings in this episode for you. But before we get into the core takeaways, as we always do, let's start off with a foregone fact where I share scientific finding from long ago. Back in the year 1900, William Hunter published in the British Medical Journal a case of oral sepsis. So back then, they already knew what sepsis was, which was a very severe and life-threatening bacterial infection. Bacteria can make its way from somewhere else and into the bloodstream, and this can be an emergency situation. Often patients may have broken teeth, toothaches that could become severely infected, And in some very rare cases, that infection became so severe that it spread into the bloodstream, and the individual sadly developed sepsis. William Hunter here describes his fascination with the idea that patients presented to him with an infection in their mouth, which very quickly thereafter spread somewhere else, like in their bloodstream, and they seemed to pass away. He deemed this as oral sepsis and noted the importance of antiseptic treatment of the mouth on a regular basis in order to prevent oral sepsis. This is when the idea of antiseptic mouthwashes came to be. Now today we have access to many antiseptic mouthwashes, and oral sepsis is much less common than it was in the year 1900. 
Now let's get into the core takeaways of today's topic on intestinal barrier dysfunction and our health. Intestinal barrier dysfunction is as though our barrier wall between the inside of our intestines and our bloodstream has become compromised. So things that normally should not be in our bloodstream now are. This includes dormant bacteria and toxins. As such, our immune system becomes activated and this can lead to elevated inflammation and has been proposed to be a contributing factor to inflammation in the brain, dementia, major depressive disorder, heart disease, and more. So how can we promote the health of our intestinal wall? How can we rebuild that defense? Well, in this episode, I'm going to talk about omega-3 fatty acids, probiotics, dietary fiber, reducing the intake of processed fast foods, trying our best to reduce foodborne illness, and reducing the intake of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like Advil, Tylenol, and aspirin. Now, let's get into those scientific details. In the journal Integrative Biology, in the year 2015, Kell and Praterius wrote a fantastic review that speaks in-depth about intestinal barrier dysfunction. So let's go through some of the basics they talk about in this review, and then I'm going to highlight some recent research. Let's think of our intestines like a brick wall, a barrier wall that perhaps is protecting a city from outside invaders. And when that wall is intact, it does a very good job of keeping invaders out. However, sometimes things like floods, fire, storms, battles, enemy fire, that could reduce the integrity of this wall. Bricks might start to fall out. Parts start to crumble. And slowly, slowly, one, two, three invaders make their way across the wall. But these invaders are sneaky, and they're few. So they don't sound the major alarm like a huge invasion would. They instead cause the defense to waste their time and focus on finding the invaders in order to capture them. This leaves the defenses distracted and less functional at defending their wall. This is an analogy for our intestines. Our intestines are like the brick defense wall. They are lined with enteroendocrine cells, which are the bricks. But over time, some things can impact the health of the wall. This includes food allergies, food sensitivities, chronic inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's and colitis. This includes foodborne illness, or what colloquially we would call food poisoning. That includes, for example, E. coli and salmonella. There's some evidence to suggest diet factors, such as eating highly processed foods and fast foods may compromise the integrity of the intestinal wall as well. And I'll get into those specifics later on in this episode too. So what happens when our intestinal wall is compromised? Well, just like in the analogy, a few invaders sneakily make their way past this wall. This happens with compromised intestinal barrier integrity as well, or leaky gut. We see movement of dormant bacteria and endotoxins from the intestines, and they cross their way into the blood. Now, this does not sound a huge alarm, as it is low-grade. The opposite a huge invasion would be sepsis, and that would be a large influx, influx of bacteria into the bloodstream that very quickly can put someone into shock and a high risk of death. Having a leaky gut is like a very slow, very low-grade version 
of sepsis. The bacteria that crosses through into the bloodstream is dormant. It is not alive and active, so it is not as dangerous as sepsis. However, this slow, leaky gut can still activate our immune system because these are foreign bodies. These bacteria and endotoxins do not belong in our blood, so our immune system gets activated because it says, hey, these things shouldn't be in our blood. Immune cells like macrophages increase, and they try to attack the bacteria and the endotoxins. And macrophages work by increasing oxidative stress and inflammation. As such, if our intestinal wall barrier does not heal, if it has these barrier compromises, dormant bacteria and endotoxins will continue to make their way into the blood. So this immune response will continue. Just like in the analogy, this uses up the resources and focus of the defense system. So our body is focused on fixing this issue, which can lead to things like chronic elevated inflammation, a reduced ability to focus, reduced cognition, fatigue, feelings of depression, etc. Because now the primary focus of the brain and body is to have this immune defense response, not necessarily to concentrate on executive functioning or thinking or memorization. Many studies have shown that this dormant bacteria is actually a potential cause of dementia and a potential cause of major depressive disorder. So let's get into that. All the way back in episode 31 in 2019, I spoke about how bacteria may contribute to the cause of Alzheimer's disease and heart disease. The reason why scientists speculate this is because bacteria such as Pseudomonas pneumonia have been found in the plaques built up of in the brain of individuals who've passed away from Alzheimer's disease. As well, they have found bacteria in the plaque of the coronary arteries of individuals with heart disease. It is believed that the plaque is part of the immune response to sequester that dormant bacteria that has made its way into the blood. That the body puts a blanket over it, so to speak, so that it cannot harm us. It forms a plaque around the bacteria. But unfortunately, over time, those plaques need to be cleared and removed. But that doesn't always happen, especially if dormant bacteria continue to make their way into our circulation. So the plaques interfere with proper brain functioning. They interfere with proper heart functioning. For example, the atherosclerotic plaques in the coronary arteries would impede blood flow. So the heart has to work harder to pump blood through a narrowed artery. We also understand that when the intestinal barrier is compromised and dormant bacteria and endotoxins like lipopolysaccharide make their way from the intestines into the blood, that this can lead to inflammation in the brain. And we've known this for quite some time, as Kin back in 2007 in the journal Glia published about this. In this study, they had administered a one-time dose of lipopolysaccharide, that's an endotoxin, that when we have a leaky gut can cross from our intestines into our blood. The scientists had noted that when lipopolysaccharide was in the blood, it resulted in marked elevations of inflammatory markers in the brain of mice. It reduced proteins that make serotonin, that is that important neurotransmitter for mood stabilization. And this one-time increase in lipopolysaccharide seemed to have a lasting impact on brain inflammation for 10 months. So the endotoxin in the circulation had a dramatic negative effect on the brain of mice. So, can a compromised intestinal barrier contribute to mood disorders like major depressive disorder? Well, Mays in the journal Neuroendocrinology Letters back in 2008 had measured the levels of that endotoxin lipopolysaccharide in the blood of 28 individuals with a diagnosis of major depressive disorder 
and in 22 individuals with no diagnosis of chronic disease. So what did the scientists find? The participants that were living with major depressive disorder had significantly higher levels of antibodies against endotoxins like lipopolysaccharide in their blood than participants without. So what this is indicating to us is that individuals with major depressive disorder in this particular study seem to have more exposure to endotoxins like lipopolysaccharide, giving us an indication that it is likely that they had a compromised intestinal wall barrier. So even though this study is not necessarily showing causation, that lipopolysaccharide causes depression, it is showing an association that contributes to the evidence that it is possible that a compromised intestinal barrier might contribute to depression. If I refer back to that review I spoke of earlier in this episode by Kell and Pretorius, they pulled together many studies where scientists measured the level of lipopolysaccharide, this endotoxin in our blood, in humans. And this can be an assessment of our intestinal barrier. Because if LPS, this lipopolysaccharide, is present in our blood, this could indicate that potentially our intestinal barrier is compromised because that is a toxin that should only be in our intestines and somehow is making its way crossing it into our blood. So let's dive into what those scientists found. They noted that in individuals living with type 1 diabetes, that they tended to have higher levels of this endotoxin lipopolysaccharide than a control group without chronic disease. Similarly, they saw elevated levels of lipopolysaccharide in individuals living with HIV, individuals with fatty liver disease, in individuals living with obesity and type 2 diabetes, in individuals living with inflammatory bowel diseases such as Crohn's and colitis, and in individuals who recently had a gastrointestinal infection with a bacteria such as C. difficile E. coli or salmonella. So what this is telling us is that there are many chronic diseases that seem to have higher levels of endotoxin in the blood than in individuals without a diagnosis of chronic disease. So let's get into a little bit more detail about some of these. Theis in the journal Science found that in mice, a salmonella infection and high blood glucose levels could contribute to intestinal barrier dysfunction. In humans, they found a correlation between glycated hemoglobin and antibodies against certain bacteria in the blood. Now, glycated hemoglobin is also called HbA1c. Perhaps you've seen that on some of your blood tests from your annual checkup at the doctor's office. HbA1c, or glycated hemoglobin, is a long-term indicator of our blood glucose levels. It is considered the gold standard for blood glucose control. So what the scientists noted here was that the higher blood glucose levels were associated with an indication of intestinal barrier dysfunction. So meaning that if an individual had higher blood glucose, they tended to have higher amounts of endotoxins in their blood. So as more evidence comes out, it appears even more important to manage our blood glucose levels, particularly if we are living with type 1 or type 2 diabetes. Even in individuals without diabetes, we can still experience blood glucose spikes if we consume a lot of high sugar foods like candy, cakes, pastries, etc. So we could potentially infer that avoiding these foods might help prevent, in part, intestinal barrier dysfunction. This animal study also indicates how an infection in the gastrointestinal tract with something like salmonella may also compromise the integrity of the intestinal barrier wall as well. So let's get into some actionable information. Let's say we suspect that we or our loved ones might have intestinal barrier dysfunction and that this could be contributing in part to some of our symptoms like fatigue, reduced cognitive functioning, lower mood, 
So what can we do? Well, we have had an appreciation for years that omega-3 fatty acids have the ability to be converted into inflammation-resolving molecules in our body. These molecules are the resolvents and protectants. Charles Sirhan, for example, is a scientist who for years has produced strong evidence that increasing omega-3 fatty acids in the diet can increase the levels of these protective molecules. As such, scientists wanted to understand if omega-3 fatty acids could reduce inflammation, they could resolve inflammation that could be brought on by a compromised intestinal barrier. So remember how I said if our intestinal wall integrity is compromised, the dormant bacteria can migrate across our intestines into our blood, which is like a low-grade, mild form of sepsis. So in the journal Hepatology in 2021, Kulkarni decided to administer one of three things to a cohort of patients battling with sepsis in the hospital. They were given no fusion as a control, an emulsion of omega-3 fatty acids, or an emulsion of omega-6 fatty acids. Omega-6 fatty acids are like the counterpoint to the omega-3s. Omega-6 fatty acids tend to be converted into pro-inflammatory molecules, and they compete for access to enzymes with omega-3 fatty acids. So it served as a good opposing control here. So what did the scientists find? In the patients who received the omega-6 fatty acid emulsion, unfortunately, their inflammatory response worsened by 4%. The control group worsened even more. By 12%. The patients who received omega-3 fatty acids had a reduction in their blood endotoxin levels by 22%. So if we go back to that analogy, omega-3 fatty acids were like adding extra soldiers to the line of defense, and they were able to bring down 22% of the invasion. Now compared with the control group, omega-3 fatty acids were able to reduce the severity of sepsis by 86%. It is pretty profound, and this is something that has been replicated many times over by other scientists. Now, these omega-3 fatty acids that the participants had received in this clinical trial came from fish oil, so it was rich in the omega-3 fatty acids eicosapentaenoic acid and docosahexaenoic acid, or perhaps you've heard of EPA and DHA. As such, there have been many, many clinical trials, so much so that an umbrella meta-analysis has been conducted that illustrate omega-3 fatty acid supplementation may reduce severity of depressive symptoms in patients living with major depressive disorder. But the meta-analyses conclude that omega-3 fatty acid supplements work best within nine weeks of major depressive disorder onset. So early on in treatment, it seems to be more effective. They also found that doses around two grams were also most effective. So let's talk briefly about omega-3 fatty acids. The omega-3 fatty acids I'm speaking about here are primarily the long-chain omega-3s, EPA and DHA, and these are found primarily in fatty fish like salmon, herring, mackerel, and sardines. Omega-3 supplements in capsule form are widely available. Do ensure to choose one that also has an antioxidant present in the capsule, as omega-3s are very prone to oxidation, which can render them less beneficial, potentially even harmful. So if there's an antioxidant present in the capsule, that's good. It will prevent that oxidation. I would also suggest for us to keep our omega-3 fatty acid supplements in the fridge and to not consume expired omega-3 supplements as they are likely to have oxidized fatty acids, which we do not want. If you would like to obtain your omega-3s from food, bear in mind that heat 
is likely to cause the omega-3 fatty acids to oxidize and change as well. So do not overcook your fish. For example, let's say you want to have salmon twice a week. Salmon only needs to be cooked to 145 degrees Fahrenheit. Some people think that it needs to be cooked much higher, but the recommendation is 145 degrees Fahrenheit. Are there risks to omega-3 supplements? At higher doses above 3 grams per day, it can increase bleeding time and have an anticoagulant effect, so it could potentially increase bruising. This is something to consider for patients on blood thinners or anticoagulants, so please do speak to your physician or dietitian if wanting to take omega-3 supplements. Also keep in mind that there are fish oil supplements, and then there are purified forms of EPA and DHA in capsule form. Both types have been studied in clinical trials, but keep in mind that if taking fish oil, we would have to take more capsules because only a proportion of the fish oil contains EPA and DHA. Those doses of EPA and DHA found to have benefit, again, are around 2 grams per day. So besides omega-3 fatty acids, what else might be of benefit? Probiotics might. In many preclinical studies, scientists have shown that supplementing the diet with beneficial bacteria, such as lactobacilli and bifidobacterium strains, may prevent intestinal barrier dysfunction. For example, Richter in the journal Surgery in 2009 reported in mice that administration of lactobacilli and bifidobacteria strains prevented intestinal barrier dysfunction, but it did not necessarily treat it in this study, but it might prevent it from worsening over time according to this study. In fact, in clinical trials, probiotics seem to have benefit to mood as well. Musaday in the journal Critical Reviews in Food Science and Nutrition last year conducted an umbrella meta-analysis that included thousands of participants to have a concrete answer to the question, can probiotics improve mood in mood disorders like major depressive disorder? And overall, the conclusion was yes. Supplementation with strains of lactobacilli and bifidobacterium seemed to improve scores for symptoms of depression but it seemed to be effective if individuals took the probiotics for at least eight weeks. So it does take time to see benefit. Also, they noted that more is not necessarily better. They found that the best results were with doses below 100 million CFU. There can be side effects to taking too much of a probiotic, such as bacterial overgrowth. I have seen some, for example, it has 10, 100 billion CFU, Per capsule, and that might be too much. For example, lactobacilli often found in probiotics are bacteria that produce lactic acid, hence its name lactobacilli, produces lactic acid. Sometimes taking too much of a lactobacilli probiotic can lead to excess production of lactic acid and lowering of the pH and symptoms of burning and irritation in the anal and vaginal area. So please do keep in mind that more probiotics is not necessarily better. And I hope that I try I try to give my best to give you a whole picture when talking about these supplements. Because treatments can be promising, but it's also important to bear in mind that more is not necessarily better and that there are some side effects. Now, if we think of defense tactics, a good strategy would be to rebuild that wall to prevent further invaders, right? So what might help us to heal our intestinal wall? Well, for individuals with food allergies, food sensitivities, living with type 2 diabetes, inflammatory bowel disease, it would be ideal to manage to the best of one's ability the condition first and foremost. 
Another thing to consider is the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs such as Advil, aspirin, and Tylenol. Back in 2009, Varnison in the Journal of Gastroenterology pulled together many studies to indicate that the intake of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like Advil and Tylenol could compromise the integrity of the intestinal barrier within 24 hours of taking them. That these over-the-counter medications can inhibit enzymes like cyclooxygenase and compromise intestinal barrier health. I think just having that awareness that there can be negative effects of painkillers like Advil and Tylenol is important information for us to have, as it might change the way we take these over-the-counter medications. Perhaps instead of taking them every day, maybe we only take them when necessary, after other methods have not worked, like if stretching, massage, a cold compress, a hot compress, or topical lotions with anti-inflammatories, if those haven't worked, then perhaps we can consider taking a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. I know anecdotally people speak of collagen or bone broth for intestinal health, but I had a really hard time finding quality scientific evidence to support this. So I think the verdict is still out in regard to the scientific evidence for collagen and intestinal health. But hopefully more studies will be conducted to investigate this, and I can share that with everyone in the future. Yusuda in 2021 in the International Journal of Molecular Science wrote of how dietary fiber may play a role in promoting the health of our intestinal wall. In our large intestine, our colon, fiber is broken down by bacteria to produce short-chain fatty acids like butyrate. It is thought through preclinical studies that butyrate will provide energy to our intestinal cells to function properly and to heal our intestinal wall. It is recommended for us to consume 25 to 38 grams of fiber per day. It is important to drink enough water with that intake of fiber as well. So sources of fiber include, for example, flaxseed, chia seed, hemp seed, whole grains, oatmeal, vegetables, and fruit. You may be wondering, okay, but if it is the short-chain fatty acids that provide fuel to our intestines for them to heal, can't we just eat short-chain fatty acids? Well, the problem is they don't taste very good. Short-chain fatty acids like butyrate actually can smell quite rancid. And so it appears best to allow our colon to produce the short-chain fatty acids locally from the fiber that we eat. Interestingly, in this same study, they suggest that a high-fat diet could potentially worsen the integrity of the intestinal barrier because it might increase the production of endotoxins like lipopolysaccharide. But at the same time, there is conflicting evidence because there's also data that the ketogenic diet, which is very high in fat, may also lower inflammation and could be of benefit for major depressive disorder and dementia because of its role in balancing GABA to glutamate in the brain and because of its role of providing an alternative energy to glucose for the brain. So in that regard, it might be a scenario of what type of diet someone feels best on. But even if eating a ketogenic diet, someone can still obtain plenty of fiber through the consumption of vegetables. So there you have it, my people scientist army, how our intestinal wall is like the brick wall that is a barrier protecting a city. If the brick wall has some damage to it, invaders can slowly make their way in causing damage. So intestinal barrier dysfunction or leaky gut may lead to the movement of dormant bacteria and endotoxins from our intestines into our blood circulation. And this can lead to a war, so to speak, a strong immune and inflammatory reaction within our body and brain that can cause some damage like the buildup of plaques, immune responses. This is a proposed contributing factor to fatigue, reduced cognition, 
and the development of heart disease, major depressive disorder, and dementia. So what contributes to a compromised intestinal barrier? Food allergies, food sensitivities, inflammatory bowel disease, foodborne illness, intake of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like Advil and aspirin and Tylenol, and high intake of processed fast foods. So what might help us in healing our intestinal barrier? Omega-3 fatty acids like EPA and DHA, probiotics in lower doses, eating sources of fiber, and limiting our use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. I hope that this episode was useful and insightful for all of us. My goal is to empower us with information that is relatable and actionable. If there is new research coming out on this topic, you can be sure that I will update all of us. If you enjoyed the episode, then please consider telling a friend, leaving a comment or review, or buying me a coffee to say thank you for the show. The links on how to do that are in the description box to this episode. I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I look forward to meeting you all back here in two weeks' time. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates. Thank you.